Thanks for checking out this episode of Business Black Belts. I really appreciate you listening and hope you get some great insights out of today's leader. Let's dive into the show. Welcome back to Business Black Belts. I'm Laura Hoover, and again, we have another fantastic leader on the show today, Miss Rowena Silvera Beck. She is the co-founder and COO of Mass Tort Support, also MTS, if you were willing to prefer that as well. So welcome onto the show, Rowena. Why don't you go ahead, take us through a little bit about your story, what's going on. Uh, it's like that whole kind of package. Sure. Thank you for having me. So I, I, I come from a semi-quasi-entrepreneurial family. My uh, parents had restaurants. I was born into a restaurant family. And um, so that we were in the restaurant business for a long time when I was uh, very, very small. And then we got out of it. But periodically throughout, every, people in my family were in business. And um, I became a paralegal back, let's say, a few decades ago. I don't want to age myself. But I became a paralegal. And all the while that I did my paralegal career, I also always had a side grind. I like to say a little side hustle. I was always doing things. I wrote for a magazine or I did something. I always did something. But I was always fully immersed and entranced with business, how businesses work, how they were built. And it could be um, I'd be reading something like, say, Barbarians at the Gate, the, uh, the, the, the Bisco Takeover or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I was fascinated. So years and years and years of working as a paralegal, being a senior paralegal, managing cases, sometimes managing staff, managing offices, and then reading these books, taking these workshops. Now, I'm not exactly sure all this time where this is leading, right? Mm-hmm. I, I just can't, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, well, I know I could be a CEO or a CEO, but really, how am I going to make that leap? So anyway, I just kept doing what I was doing, and I uh, opened two small not-for-profits that I still have today, and I still learned some more business things. And all of a sudden, in about 20, I would say it might have been early 2017, Andrea Hirsch, who is the co-founder and the CEO of our company, Mass Tort Support, and I were working at a law firm. So she was a partner there. I was a senior paralegal, and we were working together with other people, having a great time. Such a great time and such a great environment that we decided that we were going to retire from here. So no matter what businesses that we might have on the side, this was going to be our mainstay. Great, no problem. Then we got the word that they were closing the Atlanta office. So, uh, so much for plans, you know, the best laid plans as, as it were, right? Yeah. So uh, what we did was we said, okay, fine, you know, she'll go her way, I'll go my way. We would try to think of how could we do something so we could stay working together, but we couldn't really figure out how we were going to package the both of us and say, hey, you got to take the both of us. Anyway, time passed and we moved from space to space and the short and long of it was that now it's getting close. Everybody else is gone. It's just the two of us left. They moved us from a very cushy, nice um, office and put us in a small office, which was nice because we worked with nice people in that building, but it was much smaller than what we were used to. And the days are going. And so Andrea's in one office, I'm in another office. And the only thing that separates us is a door. There's no hallway, nothing. Just an office and an office. We were at the top floor at this point of a town, a townhome, like a business townhouse. Gotcha, yeah. And outside of that was the, the kitchen area where everybody from the building would come up and have their lunch and so forth. But Andrea and I were in a corner, almost like an attic. And every day we're like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? 
So one day we're doing something called a plaintiff fact sheet, which is a, it's sort of a discovery device used in mass tort litigation. And we had maybe 13 of them to do, and it was hard. It was just the two of us at that point. We had other things to do. So it was like, how do people do this? When you have all this other work in the law firm to do, these things take a long time. You have to interview the plaintiffs. Like, how are people doing this when they have a hundred of these? We have 13 and they're driving us nuts. So we were like, well, what do people do? So we were like, we don't know. So we went to our friend, Google, and we Googled it and we didn't see anybody doing anything about it. So we found essentially a point of pain, you know, in the industry. So I'll stop there for a moment. But that's, that's, that's how we got to from one space to another. Wow. So I want to jump all the way back for a hot second before we go all the way back to present, right? How did you decide on a legal path of career? Like you said, you you kind of grew up surrounded by the restaurant industry. So you kind of were surrounded by the entrepreneurial nature. But how how does one translate to the other? Or is it just... I'm That's gonna, a book itself, but I will tell you what happened. The truth, I'm going to give you a real story. Oh, no. So back in uh, a certain decade in the uh, 1900s, <laughs> I um, used to do hair in Brooklyn out of my mother's living room. Now, this is way before the hair industry took up, took off, right? So I used to, I figured out how you could do a hair weave, and I would undercut the local beauty salons and do the hair weaves out of my mother's living room. So I had, like I tell you, I've always had some kind of sidekick. So one day I was out talking to this uh, beautician. She came to my house. The beautician came to my house to get her hair done. And she says, oh my goodness, you do hair better than these platform artists that we go to at these conventions. So why don't you come? She and her mother owned a salon. Why don't you come and do hair weaves for us? But I didn't have a, um, a license or anything like that. I was just doing it out of my mother's living room. So she said, come do it for us. We have the license. So all you do is you put the weave and we'll do the cutting and the coloring and all that other stuff. So I said, okay, I'll do that. No problem. So I was all set to do that. And an employment agency, I must have put something in with an employment agency at one point, called me and said, we have this potential job for you. So I go, I said, well, let me just try. In my mind, I'm thinking I could kind of do both things. So I go to the, to the law firm to have this interview and it was at that time, and I'm going to put this in quotes because I'm not using proper English here, the swankiest thing I had ever seen. <laughs> and I thought to myself, whoa, whoa, this is fantastic. And they said, well, you know, if you work late, we buy you dinner. And if you work late, we send you home in a car. And the more they told me, the smaller and smaller that beauty salon looked. So I end up saying, well, it's either I'm going to do the beauty salon thing and go to beauty school or I'm going to start with this. Anyway, I got into the paralegal lifestyle. I, I made a decision and then I never left. And I loved working where I worked in New York. It was a great firm. I met wonderful people. Some of my lifelong friends are from that place and we worked long, hard hours. And one of the gifts of that um, environment is that because we worked so many hours, it taught me to work. I knew I could work nights and I knew I could work weekends. And as doing that, and I was a litigation paralegal and doing a litigation paralegal work, you do everything from soup to nuts. You do everything from filing a piece of paper straight through to sometimes drafting everything except giving a legal opinion. So you're really a great support to the legal team. 
And I was being trained for what? I didn't know, but I was having a good time. I was doing it. And I kept working at night and I kept saying, one day, I'm not going to be doing this. One day, I'm going to run my own company. Now, the path wasn't clear, but I knew it. And that's when I started reading all my business success books, as my friend would call them. So that's a, that's a, the legal profession in general, from what I have seen people go through, is absolutely remarkable. The amount of effort, the amount of time, the amount of mental effort, not just physical, but mental effort that you have to do all the time is absolutely incredible. Tell me just a little bit about that. Like, obviously, you, you go from a very young, you know, apprentice almost position yeah. doing everything quite literally to now being the COO. So you, in theory, you're not doing everything still, but that is still a huge grind all the time. How, how, how do you, how do you keep your brain sharp? I mean, coffee, I'm from personal experience can only go so far. Right. It can. And coffee is exceptionally helpful. So let's, we won't discount coffee at all, but coffee is helpful. But what I think it is, is that for me as a COO um, and with uh, my business partner, Andrea, we wanted to run the kind of company we, we wanted to work for. So I've already already known all these years, all these decades, what kind of company I wanted to work for, what kind of leader I wanted to be. And so when it came time to doing it, because Andrea and I, and, and I can get into a whole story with that. When Andrea and I started, it was just the two of us. There was nobody else. There was no team. There was no staff. There were no contractors. It was just me and Andrea. And at, at those first early days, we were pulling people in from everywhere to try to help us because we never knew what, when the work was coming, how it was going to come. And, you know, there's so many layers of stories about every, every part of the, the grind, so to speak. But what happened is that we started uh, working and we know how to do the work. So we always knew that worst come to worst, we can hit the ground running and we're going to do the work ourselves. But we started pulling people in and we got very fortunate in that the people who have come through MTS and the ones largely who have stayed have are excellent. The team members are excellent. So the people that once you train them and you develop them in a certain way, even if that was not necessarily their area of expertise in the beginning, they've come along significantly. So we try to place people in the area where they're going to thrive, not to say, well, this job needs to be done. So you do it. Sometimes, unfortunately, we do have to do that. But for the most part, we push people and we lead people into areas where they're going to thrive. Therefore, they thrive, the company thrives, we thrive. Actually, that's something I want to touch on a little bit more because I'm just starting out in my own journey in, in, in my career and leadership and so forth. Okay. The thing that I've, I, I've personally struggled with before is just the ability to train someone and then let them take over and let them like, let that burden go. Uh, I learned, I learned part of that way the hard way about mm. burning myself out by taking on too much and then keeping it and not being able to trust someone else with the same thing. Because I, you know, I know my limit. I know how I do things. I know like what my expectations are, but to the ability to perceive the expectations of others and being able to say, I can't do this anymore. Please do this for me or please help me with this. Can you take me through that a little bit? Because I always find that kind of journey very interesting. I think that's a combination of the people that um, 
I remember a couple of years ago, I'd gone to a leadership conference and it said, it's not the people who you hire, it's the people who you fail to fire. I remember that stuck in the back of my head, but, and I take, I bring that up only to say that if you have a a certain caliber of, of, of employee or staff or partnership or whatever it is that you're in, then you start with that. So you're starting with excellence because the person can produce a product. Now I can do it and I might want it done this way. So in building our culture at MTS, we are very open to what, uh, the person who's actually doing it, what do they have to say about it? Yes, I think it needs to be go go A, B, C, D, E, F. Is that what you see? You're you're closer to the flame. What are, what are you seeing? So I have to be coachable. So I not only want to coach our team for, for them to, to thrive and to be excellent. I also, as a leader, and Andrea, as a leader, we have to remain coachable. We have to remain open. We have to remain open to hearing. I know that's what you wanted and you think it works. And I know that's what you used to do. Yeah. But this may not work anymore. And so if we can't have that dialogue, then what happens is that people leave. We have to do do the task. We're burnt out. Everybody else is burnt out. So there are times when people do get burnt out as a part of being business. But yeah. a, a bigger part is really creating a culture in which there is open dialogue. That makes sense. Were there any challenges along this? Uh, obviously, the... The, the, the staffing issue was fun, you know, the ability to actually do things and, and to be able to do them on, like, relatively timely fashion. But was there anything else, like, get, getting this business started that was that yeah. just really just hit you, like, impactfully? I think um, we, you know what? We didn't plan, you know, it wasn't like we were sitting around for five years in advance and deciding we're going to go into business. So we had a lot of roll up time and it wasn't like, you know, you know, everything, everything matters from staffing to finance, to um, culture, to, you know, production, to project management, everything matters. So what we did initially is we just took our background. We just said, look, our background, if we were doing this for the law firm, how would we do it? Because when you have this, the onus of thinking, oh my goodness, this is our business. Uh, our lives depend on it. The staff's lives depend on it. The, you know, what are we going to do? Oh my goodness. Then you, you're walking into it with an anxiety. Yeah. But it's the same, oh, in some ways, the same thing we did that when we were working for somebody else. So if we were working for someone else, how would we navigate this? Now it takes the pressure off of, you know, rise or fall. The ego is out of it. And you just, you just work. And so whatever challenges come up, you figure the best way to solve them. You think of things in advance if you can, but there's some things you just cannot capture. You cannot capture um, what a rogue employee might do. Like the person's been completely normal for a year and then all of a sudden they go left. Yeah. You can't anticipate that. But when you when something happens and you meet the challenge, and I think if you work with it, with, with integrity, that your team knows that you really are interested in them and that we're really building this together, that then you have a buy-in that you can't beat. So here, another question that I also had, almost relating along this line, um, but as you started to scale, right? As you started to bring people on, you're being coached, you're coaching them. It's a two-way street of dialogue. How do you also begin to scale that workload? Because as you scale people, you also have to delegate and train more people and, you know, scale that workload, but also bring in more clients and then 
you know, it is this cascading thing. Well, what worked for four people might not work for a team of ten, which might right. not work for a team of five, actually, but yes. also might work for a team of fifteen instead. So how how do you navigate that ever shifting like kind of house on the sand almost? Because the parts of it that you can replicate, you replicate. And then the part that needs to be changed, you change. So if you if you've done something five, six, seven, 20 times, and we've done it, let's say we have a 50 units of work and we've done those 50 units of work seven times. Now, all of a sudden there's 300 units of work, right? Mm-hmm. So some of it is some of the steps we can just replicate. We do this, we do this, we do that. Now, how do I pivot? And so we have to also as leaders be open to pivoting and then pivoting again. So maybe for that next project, I'm going to use a completely different system on half of it. And then if I do it the next time again, I got to go back to the first way I was doing it because that works. So I think it's about being open and thinking it's going to if then thinking. If I do this, then that's then sorry, if then thinking. If I do this, then that's going to happen. If I do this, then what? If I do this, then what? And just being open to to pivoting and not being afraid to to do it again and again and again, go back to something you used before that worked. Always asking yourself what went right. So I'm going to ping off of this one as well. How do you turn that reactive phase to a proactive phase? Because there's a lot of reaction, obviously, people coming into you inherently have a reactive mindset. I am reacting to a trouble that happened. I am reacting to this pain that is being caused. I need this fixed immediately or as fast as they can. Um, right. So how do you turn that that reactive workload into a proactive workload? The breath. The breath. <laughs> the breath. Got it. So yeah. this is where you, you have to take the breath. You have to pace yourself. So I, I like to think about my leadership in ways of conscious leadership. It's just not leadership from a book because what works for me leading you is not going to work for me reading, leading someone else. What works for me correcting you is not going to work as a corrective action for someone else. So I have to take the breath. This is what happened. What's the most immediate thing that needs to be done in this situation? If there's a fire, obviously I got to put the fire out and deal with the smoke secondly. Yeah. Right. So I have to figure out what is the immediate thing that needs to be done. If something happens and I need to deal with my clients first, I'll do with my clients first. And then I'm going to get back in and say, okay, so this is what happened. We don't need to demonize anybody. We don't need to make anybody wrong. Let's go through the steps of what happened. And then let's, let's figure out how we don't have this happen again. But if I'm reactive, if I'm panicky, it's contagious. Yeah. Right. And what I don't want to do is to shut anybody down from telling me the truth. Yeah. And if I, if, if you know, my reaction is going to be completely crazy then I'm never going to get the full truth from you and I can't fix what it is for the next time. So we'll continue to find ways for that mistake to show up in different clothes, different addresses, but that mistake will show up time and time and time again. Yeah. It's something I learned in EMS is you never walk, you, you, you never run to a scene. You walk to a scene. Exactly. There you go. Never run. Always. You can walk quickly. Right. But, but walk. <laughs> um, so let's turn something a little on its head instead of this kind of okay. like dark problematic world. What what are what is at least one of the key moments that kind of sticks in your brain as it clicked? Like this business, like yes, this is this is this is this is the moment. This is the exact time 
it's worth oh, it. Oh, I can tell you that. I can take you there for sure. So, the uh, and again, condensing our story, but uh, we thought, so when we were telling people that we were going to go into this business, it was like, um, we got different reactions. You know, some people support you just because they're going to support you. Okay, yeah. good, good luck, whatever. And some people have very strong opinions. And some of the opinions that we got were like, that'll never work. This can't work. Blah, 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 whatever. Okay. So one of the supporters, one of our great supporters, she said to us, uh, which was a partner that we had worked with in one of the firms, because the firm was connected with other firms. And she said, listen, I think this is a great idea. We're going to go ahead and give you some of my business. It's going to be 500 units of this particular thing that we're going to do. And we're like, okay, sounds great. We were so excited. Come to find out because our business hinges upon court decisions and protocols and practices and so so many procedural things that it wasn't going to happen right away. So we didn't have it. She gave us 30. So now you have two grown people with lives and homes and families and now we have 30, right? Yeah. And we did 30 and we, you know, we, we got it done. We got it done. And the next time um, Andrea reached out to someone she knew and that person gave us 200. Well, you might have given us a million dollars because we were so excited. We could not believe somebody was giving us 200 fact sheets. It was like, who could breathe? And, and so it was feeling good. But the next job we got was 1600 and it clicked. It clicked. It was like, oh my gosh, this is a thing. Like this is a business for real, for real, for real, for real, for real. You know, we were so excited about that because it finally clicked that this is something. And then we went from that to 3000 and we've done, you know, tens of thousands since then. But it's that 30 where you're like, okay, this could be something. The 200, which is, all right, I feel like we can keep going, right? We can keep going because this kind of has a, a, a future. Then 1600, you're like, oh my goodness, we, we, we have to hire people. We have to do this. We have to do that. We have to have interest, you know, infrastructure. We, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. So that's, that's the moment for me that it clicked. Okay. This is something curious and sure. um, more than likely it'll probably be edited because I don't know the nature of this question, right? What is a lot of fact sheets now? Like what, what is that number that is starting to like, like, Oh wow, that is something that we're gonna like that that next level of of, of number. Oh my sheets. goodness! You know what? I can't. Let me just say this so you know. Yeah. We started out doing fact sheets. That's what that was what our thing, that, yeah. right? Right. But we have diversified so much since that point that the fact sheets, while it's a significant part of our business, I think if somebody told us they had. I don't know, 20,000 fact sheets and we would be like, oh, okay. Oh, okay. You know, we're that way with the facts. We've, we've done so many thousands of them that it's like, you know, we have a system, we, right? We, we can move into it, but we do other things and we've diversified, you know, our, our offering so much that we have incorporated more of the discovery process. So now we do everything from intake from the very first time that the client can be client acquisition straight through to a settlement process and everything in between. So a law firm can essentially hire us and say, look, here's my uh, cases and we can help them manage and run those cases until they need to pick them up again. So it's a diversification that I think that has been, you know, like how much can we grow? We, we're still scaling. We're still looking at how can we scale? Where do we need to scale this side? 
where do we need to cut back on this side? We just had a conversation this week about scaling. So it's never, uh, it's a never ending story. Can you scale now? Do we not scale? Do we wait? You know? Can you expand a little bit more on the beginnings of that? Like, how do you make that decision of, okay, we're good with the fact sheets. We, we can do that. We know how to do that. We know how to scale that. What else can we put to our offerings? Like, right. what like, makes sense for the next offering, if that makes sense? So the next offering, whenever you have a secondary offering, whenever you're branching out, the next offering has to partner with the first offering so that you're not going from, you know, uh, let's see, um, I bake cakes. Well, now I'm going to make uh, engines. You know, it's like, you don't want to do that, right? So you might say, I make cakes, and I'm going to make three-layer cakes. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make four-layer cakes. Or I'm going to take the cake pieces, and I'm going to make cake pops. Or, you know, like that. So for us, we did plain a fact sheet. So what else do people need? Well, they may need some medical record review to go with those fact sheets. So let's do that. Mm-hmm. What else might they need? They might need some client interviews to get certain certain pieces of information. They might need narratives written. Let's do that piece of information. You know, it's a myriad of things connected to the basic discovery process. Gotcha. No, that makes sense. And then we move on, Pat. Okay, with discovery. Now we've done that. We've captured every, have we hit every bell in discovery? Is there anything else in discovery that we we have not touched? We, we can do interrogatories. We can do that. We can do document. Okay, we can do all that stuff. Now what's next? Well, preparing for settlement might be next. Can we help you prepare for settlement? Makes sense. What do you need to prepare for settlement? What types of information do you need? What kind of grid do you need? And then we move on. So you always want to take the core core of what you're offering and have it be, if you can, an offshoot of that. So you have a subject matter expertise. Gotcha. Yeah, and then it just kind of snowballs from there. Right. You're you're you're, you're within the same chapter of the book. Just a different page. exactly. Or you at least you listen. Problem is that some people only want to stay in the same book. Ugh. You're in the book. The chapters may change a little yeah. bit, but stay in the book. Stay in the book. Right? Stay in the book. Write the whole book and then start another book. Right. Then start another book. Now, if you want to do a book, let's say you so wrote the, you wrote the book about cakes and all kinds of cakes and all kinds of cupcakes. About, and can you tell I like cake? But anyway, you've, <laughs> you've, uh, you, you've done all that. Now you're thinking, oh, I can build car engines. Well, start a whole new book and build car engines off of another brand. But you can't want to do that and car engines in the same branding. It confuses your the market, really, and your customer base. True. Unless you get really fancy cakes that look like car engines. Now, there you go. <laughs> but you're still making a cake. Exactly. Right? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's cake. It's a cake. It's a cake. So, let me throw a curveball at you, this one. You, oh, boy. <laughs> you have business. You're going strong. You're doing your thing. How do you get away? How do you re- like just re- get recreative, let loose, de-stress, and then come back in? Well, what we was, and I, I almost speak for Andrew too much, but she, you can interview her separately. But um, what I what we do is, you know, when we stress, we stress. We're human beings living in a human context, so you're going to stress from time to time. For me, I have a practice of meditation. I meditate. Yes. That is a part of my practice. I do breath work. That is a part of my daily practice. Um, I, I have a coaching practice that I do in addition to, I work with uh, other attorneys and executive and leadership. So the same things I tell them is to take the breath, to get out, get a walk. And when I have something I do called four hour vacations, 
And I will schedule that out. If I'm nearing stress, I, I will schedule a time out where I can literally do anything. I can, I would color. I'll do anything even childlike, play Jackson ball. But that's my time I carve out. And I don't answer my phone. I don't scroll the internet. I just do what relaxes me. I Music, whatever it is. And when that four hours is over, I'm back in the grind. Oh, that is good. That is good. I, I, I've talked to some people who kind of do the same thing. Like, okay, I know I'm hitting that, that wall. I'm going to go take a like, 10 minute walk. No one's disturbing me. You got to stop. Yeah. Because, you know, you, self-care, you know, people may feel like, oh, self-care is a little hokey. You'll get your nails and get a massage. Yeah, those things are important, but sometimes you don't have the time for all yeah. that, or you can't. And sometimes the best you can do is if you're at a conference and you're stressed out about something and you're trying to deal with 50 things at once, it's to get up and say, you know what? Seven minutes is not going to change the world. Get up, walk away, go to Starbucks. Get a, well, it don't have to be Starbucks, okay? Caribou, anyway, wherever your coffee shop is, your coffee shop of choice. Go get something, you know, and, and just break and then come back. So sometimes just breaking the moment is all you need to let off some of the steam. And I find breaking the moment is good in multiple scenarios. Stress, or if I'm reading something, or I'm trying to, yes. you know, be creative, that little break will more than likely let me see something or let me hear something or let me think of something that I hadn't thought before because you start to get in this rut of seeing the exact same thing over and over or thinking the, about the exact same problem over and over and you just need a different angle. It's It goes back to what I said about taking the yeah. breath. You must take the breath. And I mean a literal breath. You stop and you breathe. Okay, then you just say, let's take a minute here. Let's pause. And if sometimes a pause feels like, you know, it's gonna take too long or I don't have the time. And you realize if you just sat still for a minute, one minute, that's a long time for some people. With people yeah. But it helps you to have the moment to recalibrate. Just pause, break. Yeah. yeah. I mean, attention spans are going down and down. But yeah, being able to stop and take that breath. Yes, is take the breath. I mean, to me, it's everything is about the breath is the bridge. Everything is about taking that breath. Oh, I personally think... On the note of breathing, that's a good place to wrap things up. Okay. So, in accordance with wrapping something up, if anyone wants to get in contact with you, whether it be about, you know, learning more about you, learning more about uh, MTS, is LinkedIn the best way? Is going through the website the best way? What? Which, which one? Well, there's two ways to reach me. If you're reaching me for through MTS... We, you can go through www, of course, masstortsupport.com. Uh, my email at masstortsupport is rsilvera at masstortsupport.com. And if you're looking for me for anything else like coaching or leadership work, then you can find me at uh, my website, my personal website, which is www.rowenasilverabeck.com. So you can find me at either one of those places and I can, I'm sure either get you set up with a fact sheet or a settlement grid or some coaching products. That sounds amazing. Thank you so much, Rowena, for coming on today's show. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. And same to all of our listeners. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening, Laura. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
Thanks again for listening to today's episode of Business Black Belts. Should you want to see more content on both the show, marketing, and business in general, feel free to check out my LinkedIn. Thanks.